Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Throughout all these episodes on Roman Catholicism, I've often accused them of using their own traditions as a lens or a filter in which they look back onto church history, uh, look back into the Bible, and they see what they want to see. But truly, we everybody is guilty of this when we come to the Bible. We we are guilty of of we have this these beliefs that we're comfortable with, and we want to find things that affirm what we believe. So how can we guard against this? When we go to the Bible, if if we believe that the Bible is truly God's word, we want to know what the Bible is teaching, not what we want it to teach. And so how can we guard against our own traditions in a way? Well, let me explain two different words to you. They are exegesis and eisegesis. Now, exegesis, first off, in the word, it's E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. So this has nothing to do with like Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a, a play on his name or anything like that. Um, so exegesis and eisegesis. BibleStudy.org, I found a great little, uh, little quote here about what they are. So exegesis is to dig out from a passage what it is inerrantly stating. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is the approach of interpreting passages by reading into them a particular belief that is not at all evident or clear. So exegesis, it literally it literally means to lead out of. And so exegesis will start from the scripture. You, you, you set aside previous beliefs. You go to the scripture, to the Bible, and try to figure out what the author was trying to to communicate to his original audience. That would be exegesis. We want to do exegesis when we come to the Bible, and we want to try to guard against, we want to avoid eisegesis. Now, eisegesis, it literally means to lead into. And so eisegesis takes a current set of beliefs and then looks back into Scripture uh, reading scripture, already holding those beliefs. And so you you find what you want to find. Um, so that's that would be eisegesis. Let me give you a super popular example of eisegesis. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right, so you got this five foot, 150 pound high schooler that wants to play linebacker in the NFL. And he's got you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, written on his bedroom wall or whatever, as motivation. Uh, now, that would be eisegesis. He has this particular idea, and then he goes to the Bible, finds a verse that makes him feel good, and and he's he's claiming that verse, okay? Now, in the context, Paul is writing from prison to the church in Philippi, and so I'll just read you verses, tw- uh, verses 12 and 13. So just one verse before that. The Apostle Paul says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what Paul is saying here is that no matter the situation, you know, I'm writing this letter from prison, uh, but at other times in my life, I have had plenty. I, I've been wealthy. And Paul, has, uh, Paul says that he can do all things. In every situation, he can endure. He can do all things because of Christ 
who strengthens him. This has nothing to do with a high schooler that is, you know, has no physical capabilities of playing in the NFL uh, claiming this verse as, and, and magically this is going to happen. And so that would be a really common example of eisegesis. Now, the, the, the Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 30, basically says that if you do not believe in purgatory, it, that common phrase, let him be anathema. Anyone who does not believe in purgatory, let him be anathema. And so purgatory is a dogma of the Catholic Church. The last couple of episodes, I've, I've been talking about the, the concepts of, of purgatory. And so today, we're going back to the Bible to... Uh, kind of look at some of the passages that some Catholics will use to justify their belief in purgatory. Now, there is a a variety of opinions among Catholics on purgatory. Some will say that it's not really found in the Bible, but it doesn't matter. The church says it exists, and therefore the church is correct. We don't really need the Bible anyway, because to them, truth is found in the scriptures and oral tradition. And so if oral tradition tells us there's purgatory, then you don't really need the Bible to state that. Other Catholic scholars will say that it that purgatory is absolutely taught in the Bible, and they will posit these uh, different verses. And I've, I've mentioned a couple in the last episode, and then today we're going to take a closer look at some of those. So with each passage, you know, think about this exegesis, eisegesis type of concept. With each passage that I discussed today, I want you to ask, does the passage really say what Catholics are trying to make it say? And is that the, was, was the Catholic interpretation, the author's, the, the author's intention to the original audience? And so again, listen last week, to, well, actually, the last two weeks, if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, because this sort of builds on those. Now, you can always connect with me, bearchristianity at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at the real Bear Martin. And this episode is actually not sponsored by a company. So this is not a joke. If you listen to a lot of these episodes, you know that right around here, I'll have some silly company that that's my fake sponsor. But this ep- this is not a joke, okay? This is not a joke. I'm repeating that again. A couple of days ago, I had Hardy's Septic Tank Service come to my house and they did a great job. Now, they don't they don't know that I even have a podcast. They don't know that I'm saying this at all. I'm not going to give you some code that you can really use for a discount with them. They don't know anything. There's no financial agreement at all, okay? I just they did a great job and they were very honest with me and when they could have been deceptive. And so I wanted to let you know about that because most of my listeners are probably local. And so this is a great local company if you have a septic tank. So depending on the year that your house was built, you may have a one or two tank system. We have a two tank system, but only one uh, access, only one of them is above ground, like that little concrete lid. And so it would have been very easy for this technician to come to my house, open that lid, pump out that tank, and then say, okay, see you later. Thanks thanks for your business. Uh, but he recognized that we have a two tank system and it was about it was under about 10 inches of dirt and then also the owner of the house previous to this had planted bushes over top of it so this is this is after five o'clock on Friday afternoon this guy gets to my house it would have taken no time just to pump out that one tank and then he'd be done and instead he did things the right way he, he notified me that I had two tanks 
And so we, you know, had to cut the bush back to, you know, take one bush out, um, dig around, find the tank. And then he emptied both tanks and explained to me how everything works. He did just a great job. And again, this was after five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And so I greatly appreciate their service. And so if you have a septic tank, consider using, using Hardy's septic tank service. Hardy's septic tank service. You dump it, we pump it. This is not their actual slogan, but let's be honest, it should be. All right, the first passage that I want to mention that's used by Catholics to to justify a belief in purgatory is Matthew 5, verses 25 and 26. So the context here is this is during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is teaching about lots of different subjects, and here's the verses, Matthew 5, 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the basic Catholic interpretation of this verse would be that there is a a judgment at death. You're going to go to heaven hell or purgatory. And so you need to get right with God because if you're judged, then you will be put in prison. So here they would say this prison is a a representation of purgatory and you will not get out until you've paid the last penny, as Jesus said. And so uh, in in purgatory, it's it's a whole lot easier basically to come to terms with your accuser, or some translations say make friends with your accuser. It's a whole lot easier to settle things out of court than it will be to go before the judge, uh, because once you get put in purgatory, it's a lot harder essentially to to pay for that debt in prison. And so that that's that's the the Catholic interpretation of this verse. Now here's my response. Does this apply to everybody? So there's no distinguishing here by Jesus between venial and mortal sins and temporal punishments and any of that stuff. And so eventually, does everybody who, who's put in this prison get out? Because if if we're going to interpret it that way, the way Catholics say, you know, if you don't come to terms with your accuser here on earth, when you can put in this prison purgatory, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny, which implies that you eventually you get out, is what I've heard some Catholics say. Now, you know, if this is if we're going to take this earthly example by Jesus and apply it spiritually then it's, it breaks down with the Catholic interpretation. So, so from an earthly point of view, if you have a debt that's way too big to pay off, then you will die in prison. You never get out. It's permanent. From, from an earthly standpoint, your imprisonment is permanent. You never get out of that place. And so, so this phrase, you know, what Jesus is teaching here, you can't just assume that everybody who's ever put in prison gets out. But in, from a Catholic teaching, in purgatory, you do get out. Everybody gets out. You, if you go to purgatory, you're on your way to heaven. And so you go to heaven, hell, or purgatory, which everybody who goes to purgatory eventually goes to heaven. So if we're going to take this example by Jesus and use it as a, it's an earthly example, and use it as a spiritual illustration, then Catholics have to take one piece of it, the piece of, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny, but they ha- they it breaks down in other ways. So they can't use it all the way. They just have to go in there and pick the piece that they like and say, here we go. Jesus is talking, you know, this could be 
purgatory that Jesus is talking about. Now, is this also, is this person in the illustration trying to come to terms with their accuser? And so is this is this person wanting to be made right, made friends with their accuser? If because in Catholicism, if you're not going to confession and going to penance, if you have mortal sin on your account, then you go straight to hell. You don't go to purgatory. And so Jesus is saying, he's simply saying, get right for, for the sin that you've committed, get right with that person before you come before the judge. And in the same way, on a spiritual level, get right with God before judgment day. That's, that's all that Jesus is, is trying to teach here. Um, but again, because this illustration, if we're going to put all of the Catholic stuff in here, there's no mention of venial mortal sins, and, and then not everybody's going to get out of this prison if their debt's too big. They will die in prison. So it, it breaks down in several ways for me. Now, here's, a, here's an example of eisegesis by a, a uh, Catholic scholar. So I've mentioned him before, Tim Staples. He's one of the many Catholic apologists with Catholic answers. And so I was watching a video where he was responding to a caller about this very question. He mentions Matthew 5 and goes through that verse. And then he wants to focus in on the word for prison, the Greek word for prison. That word is phulake. Okay. And so here is a quote from that video, and I'll, I'll put the link in the description or in the episode notes. And and he's he's talking about First Peter three nineteen, and so Tim Staples is is taking Matthew five. The the word for prison there is the same word for for prison that is found in First Peter three nineteen, and he's making this comparison. Okay, so here it is. Quote: Saint Peter talks about Christ going down into that same fulake and proclaiming the truth to the souls that were there. We call that the limbo of the fathers and leading them into heaven. So there's a, uh, so end quote. So there's a uh, quote, in, or there's a passage in 1 Peter 3 that Tim Staples is talking about. And so here's, let me give you the full context, because when he's, when he's talking to this listener, this radio call-in, that's, that's all he gives. And so there's a lot of stuff that he's assuming here when he relates these two words, fulake, because he's trying to make this sound like purgatory, all right? But let me give you the full context, and then we'll talk more about it. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18, uh, Tim Staples related to verse 19, and I'm also going to read 20, okay? So here it is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that's the that that's that word, fulake, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So the important thing here is Jesus goes down into this prison, Fulake, and he, he's preaching to them. He's proclaiming something, okay? And he's proclaiming to people who did not, they formerly did not obey. And then there's a mention of in the days of Noah. So these are people in the days of Noah, Noah and the ark. Um, and so these people were all killed by God in the flood and only eight people were saved. That is Noah and his family. 
Now, Genesis 6 gives us the beginning of the account of Noah, and Genesis 6, 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So these are the people that are in this prison. These are the people in the time of Noah. So their wickedness was great in the earth, and every intention of their heart was evil continually. These are not the type of people who go to purgatory. So that that part breaks down. Now, also, Tim Staples is going to say that Jesus brings them up into heaven. He, he says, we call that the limbo of the fathers, and, and Jesus leads them into heaven. Well, re- just go to 1 Peter 3 and read this passage for yourself. That is also assumed based on Tim Staples' Catholic tradition. It is not found in those, that passage. And so he wants, to, he, he wants to make this comparison, this fulake word in 1 Peter 3 and Matthew 5, and try to make it all sound like purgatory. And so if you, if you are listening to this YouTube video that, that I was listening to, and you don't go look at these verses for yourself, you will think, oh, wow, well, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you've got to go to the Bible and look at it for yourself. And, and again, we want to do exegesis. We want to read the whole passage and figure out what the Bible is teaching us, not take our own traditions and shove it in there. So the Roman Catholic assumptions here, they they have to bring a lot to this Matthew 5 passage to try to make it somehow teach something about purgatory, Uh, but it can't teach everything about purgatory because if, if if you put it all on there, then the illustration just breaks down for them. So that's the first one, Matthew 5. On to the next one. Matthew 12, 32. So let me read it for you. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So Catholics will say, here we have some sins will be forgiven in the age to come. See, Jesus says, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. So they're, they're saying that Jesus is implying that some sin could be forgiven in the age to come. Well, in heaven, there's no sin. And in hell, there's no forgiveness. And so therefore, a, a purgatory-type place must exist based on what Jesus is saying here. So let's step back, look at the context of this whole story. So what's happened here is Jesus has cast out a demon And the scribes and Pharisees are saying that Jesus was using the power of Satan or Beelzebub to cast these demons out. And of course, Jesus says, you know, why would Satan cast out his own demons? You know, that's that's the basic argument. And then we get these passages about do not, you know, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. So the the previous verse, I I quoted Matthew 12, 32. That's the one Catholics want to use. But in the the previous verse, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So, So Jesus is basically saying the same thing in a few different ways in verse 31 and verse 32. The main thing that Jesus is trying to communicate here is that 
blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That is an eternal punishment. We see this further in a parallel passage. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. They, they contain a lot of the same stories. And so this same story, the Jesus casts out the demon, the leaders, the Jewish leaders are saying that he's using the power of Satan to cast it out. I mean, it's the, it's the exact same story. In Mark 3.29, Jesus says this, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, in all of this, the, the main point, the, the thing that the author wants to communicate to his original audience is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a really bad thing. It is eternal punishment. There is no forgiveness for that. And so that's that's the point. That's that's Jesus' point, and that that's the author's intention. So Jesus is not, you, you know, you have to come to this with an idea of your look, you're thinking about purgatory, you're looking for purgatory in this to try to pull it out. And so, you know, there, this is just simply a warning against hard hearts, against against blaspheming against the holy blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So this phrase, in this age or the age to come, it's simply a phrase. It's a way of speaking. It's not to be picked apart every little piece um, to, to find what you want it to mean. It's, it's, it's a way of saying never. It's a way of saying eternal. And we get this. We get the literal meaning both in Matthew 12, 31, the verse right before that. It says the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And we also get the literal meaning in, in Mark 3. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, and, and they are guilty of an eternal sin. That is the point, not purgatory. Now we come to the big dog, 1 Corinthians 3. This would be, if there was one passage on purgatory that Catholics love, this would be the one. All right, so if you have a Catholic friend that you're you know, talking to about this stuff, this is the one you really got to dig in and know all the details. All right, so 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, the context here for the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter to the church in Corinth written by Paul, is after just the you know the basic greeting, he addresses some divisions that are taking place in the church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And, and then Paul asks like a rhetorical question. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? All right, so, so Paul is talking about these factions that have developed in the church in Corinth. So some people, there's like these cliques developing, and some people are like, you know, on Team Paul, and some people are on Team Apollos, and some people are on Team Cephas. And so, uh, and, and then some people in Corinth are discrediting Paul, and, and, and they are wanting to follow these other teachers who speak more eloquent. Okay, so Paul, in, in, if you just get out, and I, I would highly recommend this, get out your Bible and read 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And this, this whole process, this whole argument I'm making will, will make perfect sense. So some people in, are trying to discredit Paul by using words of eloquent wisdom. 
And, and Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its, of its power. And Paul in another place says, I preach Christ and him crucified. I, you know, he, he has given them the gospel. He's not trying to sound fancy. He has given them the facts. He's given them the gospel. And, and Paul says it is, you know, the, the unsaved, the non-believers consider the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, foolishness, but it is the power of the cross unto salvation for those who believe. And so Paul is, is giving them what Christ wants him to give the church. So I'm going to read the, the whole passage, the, the, the broader context here of this 1 Corinthians 3 passage, but keep what I've already said in mind. There's, there's different groups developing within the, the church in Corinth, and they're attributing themselves to different teachers, different ministers who have come and visited that church. All right, so here's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 17. So I know this is a lengthy passage, but just follow the flow of Paul's argument. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, and that day there is capitalized for the day, like judgment day, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So keep in mind what I've already told you. There's different groups with, you know, associating with different apostles. And so I think the key to understanding all of this is found in these illustrations that Paul is using. Uh, first, Paul is going to use an agricultural illustration like God's field. He's saying that, that he planted, that Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the growth. So, and then, and then he's going to follow it up, verses uh, 7 and 8 say this, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, all right? But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Their, their mission is one. Their message is one. They have one purpose, and that is to proclaim Jesus Christ. And then he says, And each, that is, the one who planted and the one who watered, and each will receive his wages. Now, this word here is misthos in the Greek. 
and that is that means reward. It can also be translated reward, and it is translated reward later down. And so I I think that this is a bad translation by the committee who translated the ESV because if both words were translated reward, again, it's the exact same Greek word. If both were translated reward, it would help the reader understand Paul's you know the the consistency of what Paul is trying to state. And so again in verse 1 Corinthians 3:8 it says he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his reward. I've retranslated it there and each will receive his reward. The original says wages, but again same Greek word. Each will receive his reward according to his labor. So their message is one but each one will be judged, so to speak, based on the, the type of work that they do according to their own labor. All right, so we've got the agricultural analogy, the planting and the watering and God gives the growth. And then Paul switches and he's going to use a different analogy, an architectural analogy, and he's going to talk about God's building. Okay, so Paul says of himself that I am a skilled or wise master builder and that he laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation other than Jesus Christ. So then we have three types of workers. We have the workers who build with good materials. That, that would be the gold, silver, and precious metals or precious stones. The builders with bad materials, wood, hay, and straw. And then we also have the the I say builder, but not really a builder. It's one who destroys, who who tries to destroy the temple. So before we get into the details of of each of these three categories, let me talk about the fire here. the The fire is, I think, what draws a lot of people to think about purgatory. There's there's some sort of testing by fire, and eventually, you know, some people don't really have to go through purgatory. Other people do, but they're they're saved as through fire. So that's where the Catholics will try to use this to talk about purgatory. But Paul here is talking about the different ministers of the gospel. He he is not he again, remember the context. The people are associating themselves with Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And so he's trying to break all of that down. And at the same time, he's saying each minister of the gospel is going to be uh tested and the quality of their work will eventually be revealed by fire. And so the fire here in this passage there is nothing about the fire purifying anything or purging away sin or any of that stuff. There, there is nothing here about purification, okay, by, in the fire. The fire here, it reveals. A, a key word here is apocalypto. That, that's a verb, to reveal. And so it, when it says it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, this apocalypto word is also found in Revelation 1.1. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, in the Greek, that is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the revelation, revealing. That is what the fire is doing here. The fire is revealing the quality of each minister's work. It is not purging away or purifying the, the work in, in any way. Okay. Again, verse 13 says, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work, what sort of work, the quality of work each one has done. So again, there's no, the, the gold, silver, and precious stones are not further purified. And so, yes, the Bible does 
use the 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 illustration of fire purifying precious metals sometimes. You, when you heat up gold, for instance, the impurities rise to the top and you kind of scrape that off. And then as you repeat this process, you get you know, a, a more and more pure gold. This is not what is what Paul is talking about. The fire simply reveals the quality of each man's work. The fire obviously does not consume gold, silver, and precious stones, but it does consume wood, hay, and straw. So it is revealing the quality of each minister's work. So there are three types of workers here. There's those who build with good materials. And so in in verse uh, 14, it says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Again, Paul's, um, Paul's argument here is very consistent. He uses the field argument, the one who plants, the one who waters, God gives the growth. Each one will, you know, will receive a, and again, the ESV says wages, but the true Greek word there is reward, misthos. And so the same thing here, if you've built with gold, silver, and precious stones, that person receives a misthos, a reward. Okay. Now, the, the ones who build with bad materials, wood, hay, and straw, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, this suffer loss means to forfeit or to lose. In Philippians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul, in in this letter to the Philippians, he talks about how awesome he was as a Jew. He kept all the laws. Of, you know, He was a, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He, he just kept all the laws. He was, as to the law, blameless, he says. But he considers all of that stuff loss compared to the righteousness, righteousness that he has in Christ Jesus. And so Christian ministers, back to this 1 Corinthians 3 passage, Christian ministers that are not building with the right purpose in their heart, they will suffer the loss of all that they have built. There is no reward for that in heaven, but they go to, they're they're believers, but they're not building uh, with the right purpose in their heart. And and I'm going to show that, that that is what Paul is talking about uh, just a little bit further down as we keep walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I need to mention here, because it does say that they will be saved, these, these ones who build with wood, hay, and straw, they will be saved, but only as through fire. You know, this is the passage where Catholics will say, see, this is purgatory. They they have some sin in their life. They go to purgatory and they're saved, but only after passing through the fire. Well, this this passage here is talking about the quality of the work of the ministers of the gospel. And so this this is they they are the ones who are trying or are building. They, they are saved. They are Christians, but some are not building with the, the right purpose in their heart. There, there is selfish motives, and that will be revealed on the final day. But they are, they're still saved. There's just no reward for them in heaven. The, one, the ones who build with the proper motivations, the proper purposes, the, the good quality, those are building with gold, silver, and precious stones, and there is a reward for those workers. 
Now, so you have the, those who build with good materials, gold, silver, precious stones, those who build with bad material, wood, hay, straw. And then the third category is people that tear down or destroy the temple of God. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So he's saying you, Christians in Corinth, you are that temple. So any any false you know, minister who comes along and tries to destroy that temple, God will destroy them. So those who are tearing down or destroying God's temple, those are they are unbelievers. They, they are not saved. They are destroyed by God. So I've tried to show that even starting in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's focus is talking about the, the churches uh, you know, trying to split up and follow these different teachers. And Paul is saying, no, our message is all one, but... There, there is a quality to one's work, and that will be tested. And so Paul's focus remains on these Christian workers. A little bit further down than the verses that we've been talking about, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, you know, talking about Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So don't let any of these teachers cause the division be united in Christ. Now, further down in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and and remember this, that there weren't verse numbers and chapter, Paul didn't write chapter 4 when he was writing to Corinth. It's all one long letter. So so sometimes these breaks in in the Bible, in these passages, they in a in some way they kind of disconnect our mind and we almost forget what we've read in chapter 3 when we move into chapter 4 but the first few verses of chapter 4 say this this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God moreover it is required of stewards that they be found faithful but with me it is a very small thing that i should be judged by you or by any human court In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So here, Paul is saying, church in Corinth, those who are doubting my message as a minister of the gospel, he's like, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel, and I don't care what you think. I will be judged by the Lord. He says, I don't, I don't think that I'm doing anything wrong, but it is the Lord who, adjudge, who judges me. He, Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against me, but it is, it is the Lord who will be my judge. Again, referring back to what he's just talked about, the quality of the work that will be tested on the day of judgment. All right, now I'm going to keep picking up with, with um, chapter four here. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light. So the Lord is going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose, listen to this, the purposes of the heart. So he will disclose the purposes of the heart of these Christian ministers. Again, it's a consistent argument. Paul is still talking about the same thing he was talking about in chapter 3. Then it says this, listen here, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Again, same type of topic. Now, commendation, it would be really cool if that word was also misthos, but it's not. Um, it, it, you know, so it's translated commendation there, but same basic category. There's going to be a judgment 
and each one will receive his commendation from God. So, you know, just get out your Bible, read 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, and just read all the way through chapter 4, and you will see the consistency of what Paul is teaching. So once again, I believe you have to be thinking about purgatory. You have to have this concept of purgatory in your mind before you read this passage, and then you have to try to see purgatory in it. But if you follow the whole context of what Paul is trying to say, he's talking about the quality of the work of the Christian ministers. Now, the last Bible passage that I want to discuss with you, there, there are others, if you, if you really research into this, there are other passages that I've heard mentioned by a few Catholic scholars here and there, but I've really tried to, to cover the majority of the ones that I, that I just hear over and over and over again mentioned by them. So the last one that I've heard a few times, this is not a super popular one, but I have heard it mentioned by a few, is Hebrews chapter 12. And so I'm going to start reading Hebrews 12, 5b through 7. And the only reason I'm starting with B is because there's it's just like basically saying, you know, this is a quote from the Old Testament. Um, so it starts, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All right, so so the basic concept here is that those who are disciplined by God are the ones he loves. And so he's going, God, if you are a believer, God is going to discipline you and make you better and better and better. And so again, this this is sort of a, this is not a real strong reference for purgatory, but you can see if you already have this idea of purgatory, you're you're already thinking about it here. You have to endure this discipline by God, but it's a it's a good thing for you because God loves you. Um, that's that's kind of the concept here, as it as it was uh, explained by a Catholic. Now, a little bit further down in Hebrews twelve verses twenty two through twenty four, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, again, the, the, the main thing that Catholics try to point out here is the, the spirits of the righteous that were made perfect. So this, again, if you're thinking about purgatory, you, have, you can shove it in there and say they're made perfect in purgatory, of course. All right, so to find purgatory in this passage, you have to assume its existence already and then shove it in there. Now, just just open your Bible and read the, the book of Hebrews, but specifically read chapters 11 and 12 for yourself and you'll get the flow of what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. The context of this passage is about earthly suffering. Uh, so they're talking about discipline here on earth and earthly suffering. At the end of Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the hall of faith. And at the very end, it's talking about these faithful Christians who have gone before the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to now. And it says that they were tortured, they were mocked, they were flogged, they were imprisoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging Christians to endure, to remain faithful, to not go back to the old ways of, of Judaism. 
He said the, the author of Hebrews throughout the book is saying, don't go back. There's nothing there for you. Stay committed to Christ. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those? The ones that he just talked about in the previous chapter, chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is about earthly troubles. Um, again, these these people, the faithful people in Hebrews eleven, tortured, mocked, flogged, imprisoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, and the, in chapter twelve it's saying we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Continue on, continue running the race. Now, you know, it, some people say that Hebrews was written by Paul. There's there's lots of different opinions on that, but Paul in one of the last books that he writes, Second Timothy, says that I have. I have run the race. I have finished my course. So this race here is talking about earthly life, if we want to uh, put those two together. So in wrapping up the just in general about purgatory, this will be my last episode on purgatory, I obviously reject the Roman Catholic dogma of purgatory, especially the things that go with it, such as indulgences and the treasury of merit. If you've listened to these episodes on Roman Catholicism, you know I, I just go on rants about those all the time. Um, so I just reject the concept of purgatory and everything that goes with it. However, I can understand how some people philosophically will argue for some type of purification station after death. And so this is where we get uh, C.S. Lewis and Jerry Walls and other Protestants. It's a philosophical type of argument, although I disagree. Um, and so so I can see how people can can think that they need to be purified in some way, but not the Roman Catholic way. But when we go to God's word, we find out that God's grace is bigger than purgatory. So if you are saved, you went from being dead in your sins to alive in Christ. If he can remove the eternal damnation, surely he can remove these so-called temporal punishments. And so it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel to think that in any way, even in the smallest way possible, that you somehow can earn attain or in any way pay for your own merit or righteousness or perfection before God. You you are you don't earn and you don't pay for and you don't suffer for your own uh your own righteousness, your own perfection. That is the gift of God. So it, rather it is God's grace which makes you righteous. So all glory goes to God if you are saved. All glory goes to God. Another way of saying it is this, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus.